<laughs> You're not afraid of speaking your mind, Tiff. I think I understood super early that if it's not inspired by or it doesn't touch me, I can't give it my all. I'm Melina, and this is a one-woman show about a girl getting through her 20s fully confident called Don't Forget Your Lipstick. Okay, this is not about makeup, but more about how young women can build the confidence they need to achieve their goals with your fave confidence coach, me. Hashtag DFYL. New episodes to motivate you to stick to your guns every Monday morning. Now, you don't necessarily have to have guns. You know, you don't need to be working out the tricep, but I want you to stick to your goals. Now, a few quick things to mention. These are adult conversations. So heads up, if you've got kids or boyfriends or mom or dad in the room, now's a good time to put your earphones on. Now, this week, I'm joined with the first female executive director of the Côte des Neiges Black Community Association right here in Montreal, Tiffany Callender. Now, we dive into representation, why it matters, being a minority in North America, and how to overcome your fears and live your life serving rather than chasing a title. By the way, I recorded this episode on Instagram Live right here in my living room. Enjoy. The reason why I started doing this is because I realized we need to have more conversations with people who are on the ground, you know, with people who are Mm -hmm. making a difference. And I said it before, people who are doing things, and I like to say brick by brick, because I feel like we're all building this home, but it's Mm. going to take a lot of builders. It's going to take a lot of bricks. And I feel like you are one of them. You are one of those people who um, is doing a lot in the community and you're there you're well-spoken, you're black female, and you're not afraid of speaking your mind, Tiff. No, it's, uh, it's, it came with the birth certificate. My mama would not be having it any other kind of way. So, yeah, I think in that way, I'll say, um, I could say I, I think of myself as a big deal in that regard, that as long as I'm true to my own voice and to my experience and being able to share that and articulate it in the world so that people have a better understanding of people who have a shared life experience, uh, the same shared life experience as me, then that I'm glad to be a big deal in that regard. Because until we start to share with each other what our lives are like, there won't be understanding. And then through the understanding, we'll be able to reach a better quality society that we all deserve, right? I want to tell you something else I did for you today. Um, Other than wear my beautiful red lipstick, which I wear, I wear that for like nobody, Melina. Like that's like, you're a big deal for me to put on lipstick for live, okay? But I wore, look my shirt. I want to show you my shirt, which is pretty cool. See, can you see that? My Kamala hair shirt. Oh. So, right? Yep. I may be the first, but I won't be the last. That's what's up. I wore that just for you. Big shout out. Big shout out to Mask R Us, Carla Young, hooking up, hooking up her girl with the t-shirt. I love this shirt. It's fantastic. Yeah. I love that <laughs> Yo, I can make I can make that happen, man. I, I know I know I know a gal, right? I know I know a female entrepreneur who's doing her thing. So I can definitely hook it up. Yes, please. I want this t-shirt. Now, Tip, you know, 
I like introduced you and then we, we went off. But I wanted okay. to, you know, like you said, um, your mama wouldn't have had it any other way and it came with the birth certificate. I want you to maybe to start off, like what if we talk about your upbringing? Like what was your upbringing like? Because then I want to get into like what you do, but maybe let's okay. start with your upbringing. Sure. So I am the true blue definition of a Montrealer. I was born here, raised there. I've never lived anywhere else. Um, I was born here to two Bayesian immigrants. So my parents uh, immigrated from Barbados in the late 70s. Uh, my father is an electrician and my mother is a teaching aide at a school for children with special needs. But when they came to Montreal, um, it was right before Bill 101. So for those of you who know what Bill 101 is, that was when the actual uh, legislation around French being the working uh, language of Quebec and, of course, the city of Montreal took place. And there was a huge change in terms of um, access to opportunities and employment for those who were um, English speaking, uh, which were my parents. And there was a mass exodus uh, up to 401. A lot of communities fled and went to Ontario, including a lot of people from my community and my family. But my parents said, no, we're going to stay here. We chose Montreal. We're going to bite the bullet and uh, our kids will be bilingual, which if you think about it, that is literal like insanity to decide that you're going to take on a language you don't know and that your children are going to go are going to have to learn this language with you. Um, despite having my English eligibility certificate, my mother decided to send us to French school. So I call myself a Bill 101 kid, but I call my mom a Bill 101 pioneer parent. So she was one of the first parents to decide, despite the fact that I don't speak the language, these kids, this first generation of kids will. And she bought, uh, now there wasn't dollar stores back then because I'm born in 19... So it was, it was a neighborhood store. <laughs> I'm not giving up my age on this live. And no, she, don't do it. And don't do it. And it was an English-French dictionary. And she would translate my homework, um, the instructions, word by word. Um, and I watched my mother do that for three kids, all to say that we're all fully bilingual and we're, have thrived uh, in Montreal. Um, but I grew up in Cartierville uh, with my parents and then at 10 years old moved to the West Island uh, where I grew up in a pretty multicultural setting, you know, and uh, went to Queen of Angels Academy. Like, you know, I went to private school. So one of the few children of color in that school uh, shout out to QA, no longer there. And the building recently burnt down. Anyway, it's very emotional. But <laughs> we, it yeah, I went to, in I went to Bella Maria. I went to you Bella went to mm, those Loyola boys. Mm -mm. Those Loyola <laughs> boys. <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk on camera. <laughs> shout out to the private schools <laughs> and the crazy and the crazy people you graduate. But here, so that's it. So. Went to Queen of Angels, then went to John Abbott. And at John Abbott, I'll put a little emphasis there. Um, I think at John Abbott is where I figured out what I wanted to do in life. Not because of the program that I chose, because funny enough, I chose media arts. I was going to journalism. But uh, while I was there working for the in-circuit um, radio station, um, there was an opportunity for us to create a like kind of like a fundraiser for the school. And parallel to that, there was like the John Abbott uh, talent show that happened every year. Now, I don't know what college you went to, but John Abbott, in its head, John Abbott was still this very white, English, bluegrass college. Meantime, 
<laughs> the actual student body you look like me this philippine a whole bunch of filipino kids you know a lot of arab kids who were in the school and we all loved hip hop so there was a disconnect happening so <laughs> i decided to make the fundraiser for the radio station an actual urban talent showcase which like directly challenged the school um talent show and basically like killed it cuz we our show became the show of the school and uh in the four semesters that i was there we raised over $10,000 for different charities across canada so uh we raised for the red cross for the aids epidemic in africa um uh we raised for muscular dystrophy uh we raised for junior junior diabetes so I say that to say this I really believe at John Abbott not due to the program I was in but to the experience student experience that I had I figured out that I wanted to be in the nonprofit sector I figured out that you could take things that interest people and create projects that will help people and once I understood that that was a thing uh I I couldn't do anything but pursue it so I went to Concordia University in human relations but at the same time started working in my community um and and trying to figure out what I wanted to be and in a community center i've worked every job <laughs> you can think of um animator right up until in 2013 i was named the executive director of the cotonage black community association which is one of the longest running black community organizations in canada and i'm the first woman to be the executive director of one of the oldest institutions in canada so wow yeah. one of the first <laughs> female that's right because the nonprofit sector is funny enough um the the bodies so the people who 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 create programming and do outreach and stimulate the community and engage are it's often a woman led process but as far as the leadership whether it's chairman or um people who are in executive or administrative position that is still predominantly a, a male uh sector uh, even in the nonprofit sector which is heavily heavily female influenced Uh so I am one of the first in my community to lead uh one of the longest running black community organizations not just in the city but across Canada. <laughs> wow, like I wanted to ask you something else but I'm going to just dive into this. How does it make you feel knowing when you wake up every day and you're like I'm I'm the first female to be doing this to be running this? Do you think well, about the- it or are you just like yeah, I do it. Well, I do remember the the only organ that organization um and this is just how long it is. The organization is 48 years old. Um and it only had one executive director and it was a man. And all of the chairmen were men. Um and then uh, at a point uh um when I was sitting the interviews, it was myself, a young, I was 30, I want to say 30 when I took the job. <laughs> 30, yeah. Um and and three other men who you know could have re- respectfully been my dad and you know I beat them out in the interview process um because of the work that I'd done um in kind of trying to innovate how we look at nonprofit and to to move the nonprofit sector from being not only a, an important place where we galvanize and connect in the community but also to try to shift it into a more structured uh evolving uh you know powerful entity and i think that we don't give enough credit to the the community organizations that anchor communities this becomes the extended family to many um that unfortunately sometimes they don't have family here if you're a newly arrived immigrant and you connect with a community organization that becomes your extended family your kids spend time there you go there for help so i think that there's not enough um emphasis or i want to say a uh, value 
attributed to the work that people do in community centers. And, and I wanted to highlight that and I wanted to show people how important it is. Is there like, like a female role in your life, you think in your upbringing where you were like, yeah, she's influenced my life now today. Is there one, two, three? Oh my God, there's so, there's so many. I mean, well, yeah, I already talked about my mom, uh, you know, the fearless language pioneer. Um, who I think that I, I emulate a lot, or I, I definitely try to emulate a lot, her character. Uh, she's somebody who's always willing to, to talk to a stranger and share information and anything she knows, she'll give it to you just to hope that it'll help in any way. So I have to say my mom, definitely. Um, my two grandmothers, who I didn't spend a lot of time with because they lived in Barbados, but the stories I heard about them, I think, influenced. They were both entrepreneurial spirited women uh, who ran their own businesses, whether they were formal or informal. And I think that the way that I manage projects in the community is very similar to the way that they did things. And I started company. I started a company very young um, as well. So I think there's that. But I will give. I will definitely speak about two other women, three other women, very quickly. Um, the first camp day camp that I ever worked at. So my first job was at a black day camp in the West Island, which is run by a lady named Lorna Joseph, and. I watched her run a day camp. First of all, I lied to get the job. I told her I was a year older than I was. I love <laughs> she it. She knows this. But this is not, <laughs> I just wanted the job so bad. I was 12. I needed to be 13 to be a CIT. So I told the little fib. I told that I was 13. And uh, she gave me the job. And I watched her work with us young teenagers with kids, 3 to 12 years old, with parents and there was something about that dynamic that made a lot of sense to me. So uh, now I run three-day camps. And I have to say that my blueprint of what camp should be, how it should feel, what we should do, all of that is, 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 is off of her. So I, I think she gave me my first experience in what I didn't know yet was community service. And that definitely shaped the work that I do. The other person is Dr. Myrna Lashley, who was... Uh, the dean, right? <laughs> I got, I got, I got big, I got big mentors. That's for sure. <laughs> I got You're big lucky. ones. Lucky, Myrna yeah. Lashley. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Who, who I affectionately call Auntie Lashley, but <laughs> um, she is a. Uh, she was the dean at my college, and uh, she always, you know, checked in on me and made sure. And while I was running that talent show at John Abbott, uh, she ran alongside the school to make sure that I was given. Um, the, the, the recognition that, that, that students should um, for the work that they do that increases the, 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 the culture at the school, the student culture. And she was very instrumental in teaching me how to present myself in front of an administration and say, this is what I'm doing and I, and I need for you to see me and I need for you to help me. So she was great and still a very uh, influential person in my life. Last but not least, Marlene Jennings. So the first... <laughs> like wow <laughs> so <Bye. laughs> no, no. And, and, and I say that she also huge influence in my life um first woman to uh sit uh as an MP black woman from uh Quebec uh and um still somebody that I call on to this day I I I really respect the way that she tells the truth that she's um a very unapologetic about what is right and what is wrong and taking a stand about it. And uh, again, just someone I'm glad to call mentor and that I know I can call at any time and get advice and get support. So 
those oh, three women like big names I, I mean obviously yeah. i don't know the camp uh, you know the the camp uh, no. director she was director or yeah camp the director camp? that's right founder I mean, and camp I don't know director her, but mernell ashley and like marlene jennings these are big big names like I, like you know i've interviewed them many many times <laughs> yeah. they're super great powerhouses as well <laughs> Well, you stand, you know, you you I think that again, shared lived experience is important. These are women who are from my community. Uh they are English speaking black women who have um made a mark uh in the in this in in this province and um I I definitely, you know, stand at their shoulders and sit at their feet to to understand what I'm supposed to do um for my now that it's my lap. They often tell me it's your turn. What are you going to do? And they challenge me to try to keep pushing myself and uh that's appreciated because you need people to guide you but you need people to inspire you and and that's why representation is important it's seeing somebody that looks like you that has the same shared lived shared lived experience and has been successful in their sector that's what that will help you to believe you can do it too so i believe in representation and i'm a mom of a of one daughter so uh, i i believe in it and i have two sons that i i definitely want to make sure that they can look in their community and see somebody that is doing something that they can admire and aspire to the thing is you do so many different things and you know we're we're so quick at saying like okay well she is the executive director of the cote neige uh, you know black community association but if someone were to ask you Hi Tiffany, what is it that you do? What do you think you do? Because I feel like, you know, we have titles, mm-hmm. but then we actually think we're doing something else. <laughs> If I had to say what I do, I serve my community, and that manifests itself in different ways. When I'm wearing my executive director hat, that's in one way. When I'm acting as a tech entrepreneur and starting a company that I think will help to address uh preparing uh anglophone and allophone children, and and their parents assisting them to help their children prepare for French school that's serving the community when i come on uh different platforms and talk to people and share information it's it's service and so i think that i live a life of service and it allows it allows itself to be present in different ways but everything that i do is connected to helping people so that's how i knew i was on the right path of what i was here to do and how i was supposed to give it i think every once in a while you get a creative spark or there's or there's something that allows you to change the face of it but ultimately that that's what i would say i serve now this business of yours i'm assuming you were inspired based off of your parents as well absolutely i learned very early i'll tell you when my first job at uh, stitches for the, <laughs> again showing my age <laughs> at stitches uh i i i they put me i got the job to be a sales person to sell stuff and I was horrible. My sales were always last. I could sell anything. But it would depend on how the person would come to the store and what they would ask. So I could never upsell like, "Oh, you want to buy a sweater? Buy two. Buy two pairs of pants." I could never do that. But if somebody said, "I'm going to this really important birthday party and I, oh, I could dress you to the tilt, honey. We're going to I'm going to sell this store out, but I'm doing it for you. I want you to be happy." So for me, I think I understood like super early that if it's not inspired by or it doesn't touch me or i can't i i can't give it my all so yes my tech company uh nula is about is based off of my experience uh looking at my mother translate my homework word for word uh is is real dedication but i think about the advantages that i had at that time my mother only started working full time when i was in grade 4 
when I work at community centers with parents who they're working two jobs and they're and they're new to this country and they're trying to set up the foundation of being in, being here and they have children that are going to a school where they can't help them. That is probably one of the most helpless feelings. So I said, how can I use tech to try to give them a tool that will help them? What could have been uh, an asset to my mother had the technology been available? And that that's that's the premise that I came from. And with that story, I could go forever. But if it was like, you know, an app to teach you how to, I don't know, <laughs> do something else. No, but it's the fastest closed company in the world, I tell you. <laughs> but it's interesting to me because I also look back at, you know, like the choices I've made and, and I'm, I'm sort of seeing the same thing here is, you know, we all meet people or things happen to us. We have these childhood experiences and then we grow up and we're like, hey, when I was a kid, this was an issue. Let me see if this is still an issue and let me see if I can help people. And... And I, I totally get where you're coming from, where, you know, serving people, because I feel like a lot of us, we tend to focus on titles, but, you know, it's not about the title. You can have any title. It's really about how, why you're doing it, right? Like, why is it that you feel like the need to wake up in the morning and do what you're doing, right? Driven, if you're driven by your purpose, then you won't run out of gas. But if you're driven by a title or money or an opportunity, you're, you're never, you're never going to be uh, where you want to be. You're always going to be at the next spot. So I think it feeds a lot into gratitude. It feel, feeds a lot into um, feeling that you fill a space as opposed to filling a hole. That's like, uh, that's the best way I could describe it. I never feel like I'm trying to acquire or get something. I feel like I'm fulfilling something. And I think that that was, I mean, listen, let me tell you, nonprofit work is not easy work. <laughs> we don't go into it for the money. We go into it because... It's literally what we do. And we, we can see it in other people, too. We can always tell. We can tell when somebody comes to the community center, like, mm, six months, she ain't going to be here long. <laughs> or she ain't going to be here long. Because it's, it's really and truly a calling. It's like being a teacher. It's like being a nurse. It's like being a doctor. It, it's, it's, it's like being a fireman. It's like being even a police officer. It's about wanting to serve. And you can always tell the real ones from those who are there with a different intention. Talk to me about representation. You're a big advocate for representation. You, you, you know, we want to be able to see more color, more diversity everywhere. Uh, yeah. Talk to me about what it means for you when we talk about representation. Like, what does it actually mean? I think that, again, everybody's shared lived experience. What it brings to the table is an opportunity to, to have with other people a perspective that you don't. It is nobody's fault if you lived a certain life, so it's difficult for you to imagine or conceptualize or understand how somebody else lives. But if you are going to be in a position of influence or a position of power or decision-making, then you require as many lived experiences as possible to be able to contextualize for you when you make decisions. Because if not, you have a blind spot. So I think often with representation, it's often taken by the dominant culture as this uh, abstract or strange request to, to be present at the, at the table when we, we try to rely on, well, what's good for one is good for everybody. No, that's not the case. Uh, when you say that something can affect you, yes, but it affects people differently. And the only way that you can have that 360 perspective is not try to stand in shoes that you don't have or understand or own. It's, it's to bring people close to you and put them on an equal decision-making power uh, level to then be able to contextualize for you what you would have to do to help people 
from their experience. So that's what why representation to me is important. Um, that's the, 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 the detailed version of it. The other part of it is that if we want people to reach their full potential, step one is them being able to see that actual thing in real time in front of them. To, you know, it's, it comes down to what do they say? If you see it, you can believe it. Well, facts. So then people have to see it in, in, in real time, in, in their society, in their environment to believe that they can become that. My sons were born in the era of Barack Obama being the president. When Donald Trump was made, became the president, my son was like, but he's not black. So I say that because in his perception, the president is a black guy because that's the only one he knew. And I had to explain to him, well, there were many more before 44 that were not black. He's like, really? He didn't believe me. So that's how I know representation is important because it can change the perception of what you see in your society and what you think is, is possible. I love that you, you mentioned Barack Obama because just last week, you know, like I think it was Saturday, like we, you know, new elections, new American elections. And obviously as two females here, we're obviously not going to not mention Kamala Harris. Like, I mean, new VP, female, uh, black, <laughs> South right. Indian, like, so, like yeah. so many different things. And I'm like, oh my God, like so much pressure for her. But how do you feel, what do you think her win means? So the thing that I shared on social media that I thought for me best captured how I feel about this is put on your shoes, ladies, because there's glass everywhere, which is the idea of shattering this glass ceiling. So for me, she represents not only women attaining a level of power and a level a position that has been denied to them uh, for many, many years, but it also represents a woman of color. So it, it's almost, again, it's a twofer, right? It's the, it's the ability for us to say, we were able to achieve this, uh, this, what seemed like an impenetrable goal in one shot. So it's important. I, I said, when you interviewed me on Global about this, I have a daughter who, I have, an 11, I have a 12 year old daughter and she's watching this. I bought her this same shirt. Like I'm going crazy because I want her to understand that is no longer uh, an, an obstacle for you in the sense that they, that they say it never existed. Now it, it has happened. So now it's your generation job to see how many times can you replicate that? And can you break that ceiling in Canada? And can you, you know, what, what can we do? So I, I, I think that that's why this is memorable and it's important and women everywhere uh, should be excited about this this outcome. I like what you said too about your kids, you know, you can't be what you what you can't see. And I think she says it as well in her speech. You can't be what you can't see. It just it honestly I get goosebumps when I think about it. And I think the more the, the other part that people don't think about is that you can't imagine yourself um as something if you only ever see the opposite. Right? So how do you how do you how do you fathom becoming something that you only ever see the opposite. I think if people thought about representation that way as well, then they have an under, a better understanding about what we mean. If, if every leader you see is a white Anglo-Saxon or Francophone male between the ages of 45 and 55, there's a high chance that you are probably, or maybe destined to do that, do, do their job in a better way or in a more innovative way than they could. But you're like, there's no way because it, like, it's just never that. And that is asking people to imagine, believe and hope beyond what is necessary. Because if you have the skills, 
just because you don't look like it, it shouldn't mean that you shouldn't have the chance to try. And, and I think that that's the part. It's the defeatist, and it's a quiet undertone, defeating um, element that people don't realize that people of color digest all the time. And, and, and I think that that's it. Can I share a quick story? I remember the first time when I was, I was four when I went to Barbados for the first time with my parents. And I remember getting off the plane and it felt like, I assume this is what it would feel like if you landed in Wakanda, in the essence that everybody was black. And I was like, what in the hell, right? It was shocking to me because they never thought they'd have to explain that to me, that everybody's gonna look like you when we land. All right, next day we go to town, we go to the bank, the banker's black. We go here to teachers are black. And that changed my whole little mind because that for me was not what I saw in my little world, in Canada, in Montreal, as diverse as our city is, I still never saw people in certain positions that looked like me. So I know this, this changes because I remember those things like they were yesterday. I was four years old and now I'm, you know, so it's important. <laughs> These experiences are important. So okay. my podcast is called Don't Forget Your Lipstick. And the reason for that is because for years I felt like I could go out into the world and I am a confident person with or without makeup. But I feel like the minute I put on lipstick, like a bold color, right? We're talking about colors. Mm -hmm. I feel like I can go out there and I'm like, I'm ready to do what I need to do. And that's, that's lipstick for me. What yeah. would you say is your don't forget to or don't forget your what is your don't forget hmm i feel absolutely naked without earrings on like if i leave the house and i don't have earrings on for a meeting or a presentation there's something about and what earrings i choose to put on it's the accessory of my face and it tells a lot of my mood if i'm wearing hoops i'm feeling like risky if i'm wearing like studs it's because it's all business like i have different earrings that represent what I feel I need to project in the space that I'm going to be in. And if I leave the house without earrings, I'm always like, oh my God, where are my earrings? So I would say earrings for sure. It sets the, sets the tone of the business about what I'm about to do and, and how I'm going to do it. I love Tiffany so much and what I took away from this conversation is how important it is to hang out with those people who empower you and make you feel like you can achieve anything you set your mind to. And I want to remind you, girl, that even though you're 20 and many say your dream is too big, it's not. And it could only get bigger from here. And if you want to achieve that dream, DM me on Instagram at where to next Melina, because let's face it, we can all use a little guidance. And if you want to follow Tiffany and her journey at I am Tiffany calendar, I'll see you next week. Mwah.